Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, just to kind of tag on to the end, I've had a few parents asking me when we are starting our Sunday morning for our 7th through, through 12th graders back up, uh, currently, the second, third, and fourth graders are in the youth building because of social distancing. So it's not just that the student ministry is lazy, okay? It is that we have second, third, fourth graders running around in our student building right now. And so that, that when this transition takes place, uh, we will have our space back, and we are planning on starting back up our Sunday mornings on March 28th. If we don't have any more blizzards that come through, uh, offset anything, that is kind of the date that we are looking for uh, or looking forward to starting back up for our 7th through 12th grade on Sunday morning. Still will be the 1115 service, the second service, uh, but that's what it looks like. So like Pete said, uh, as he has been in this Elephant in the Room series, uh, it has reminded me a little bit of an elephant in the room within the student ministry that I also think is a good thing to just kind of bring up in adult ministry as well and just kind of talk about it. Uh, last week, I enjoyed, tremendously enjoyed uh, Pete's talk on gratitude and how much that completely changes kind of these dynamics in our lives uh, of, of seeing the good things and being thankful for the good things and how much that keeps us away from even desiring uh, damaging things in our lives. And I've seen how that has been kind of an elephant in, in my room, in my life. Uh, and one of the things that we have been doing in student ministry in the fall, uh, obviously with COVID and thinking about the fact that like next week marks, I think the one year of finding out, like we were literally at Bear Creek with the students doing our, our you know, spring break staycation night finding out we're not going back to school. And just that that has been one year. And we know that what was already a problem, this topic of depression and anxiety, uh, has become even more of a problem in our society, not just amongst our adolescents, but also amongst adults as well. And so last fall, we asked the question, what would it look like to be spiritually, emotionally, and physically healthy as adolescents. What would that look like? Not, not myself personally, but what would that look like for our, our entire student ministry as teenagers to pursue spiritual, emotional, and physical health in our lives? Knowing that what was already a difficult topic has only become more difficult within this last year. Maybe that's your elephant in the room. Maybe if you're being honest, you're like, yeah, my spiritual health, my emotional health, my physical health has not really been where it needs to be. And what we need to understand is these things are so intertwined with each other. They just are a web, you know, to say I'm spiritually healthy would mean that most likely you're operating at a much higher emotional and physical health as well. And be like, I'm in an emotional good spot means that probably you are also in a spiritual and physical spot, right? Like they just all kind of hit off of each other and tie in together and play together. And, and so I wanted us to ask that question this morning. What would it look like for us 
not just this, the adolescents in this room or the ones that went through it back in the fall, but what would it look like for all of us to pursue spiritual, emotional, physical health? What would that look like? I think that there are two really big foundational truths as we get started that we need to be aware of, and I realize that this first one is very simple. I remember when I gave it uh, months ago, I actually had a student kind of laugh at its simplicity. The simplicity of it is not the point. The point is, are we believing it and applying it? All right, where's my marker at? Okay, this first point. Jesus is with us and for us in our suffering and brokenness. Most of us in this room at a very intellectual level understand this. The question is not, do you intellectually know it? The question is, does it apply to how you think in your daily lives? Because when I evaluate myself, and I'm sure when you evaluate yourself, we find ourselves at times thinking, if I can just deal with my crap, am I allowed to say that in here, Pete? Can't remember. Okay. If I can deal with the brokenness that is going on, if I can just get everything in order, if I can kind of create this health in my life, then I can kind of go back to Jesus. I can go back to God. And I'll be, he'll be, I'll be ready for him. And what we see is that that is so kind of oxymoronic to what it means to be a follower of Christ. I, I really like this quote by Thomas, or actually, sorry, this quote by Thomas Goodwin. That there is this biblical evidence that all, that the risen Lord, alive and well in heaven today, is not somehow less approachable and less compassionate than he was when he walked the earth. Sometimes when we read the Gospels, we see how Jesus is amongst the broken, and we think, if I could have just lived there at that moment, then I would have a better idea of who he really is. And Goodwin's like, nope, that's the same God. This same, when we went through Hebrews, this, this same God where it says that this high priest, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And it goes on to say, so let us now come boldly to the throne, this, this high priest that understands our weaknesses, let us come before him. Because there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we most need it. Intellectually, we know that Jesus is for us and with us in the midst of our brokenness. But is it actually being applied to how you come before him every day, every week, every month? how you think through it, how you actually think through it. The second point is that we have a role to play in our own spiritual, emotional, and physical health. Sometimes, sometimes we kind of as Christians think, oh, well, God has done this for me. Jesus has done this for me. Now I just become this passive bystander in my, in my faith in my sanctification, in my growth. And I was reminded as I was thinking through this talk of uh, back in the spring when we did Philippians last year. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, I, I actually got to speak on those verses. And I remember Paul was basically making the point 
because God is working in you, you also be partnering with him and working with him for your own spiritual, emotional, and physical health. You don't just step back. There's so many imperatives throughout the epistles of action that you need to be taking. Not so that you bear the weight of it, but because God is already working in you. Therefore, you partner with him and become active in your faith. You're not a victim to the things that are taking place. You are active in it. I... Uh, I spoke on this topic of depression and anxiety a few years ago, and I still want to say uh, this book right here, My Name is Hope by John Mark Comer. Anytime I discuss this topic, this is the number one uh, resource that we use in the student ministry. We have probably, who makes this book? I don't even know. All right, I don't know who the publisher is. Oh, Graph Publishing. We have probably paid about 50% of their salaries because of the amount of this book that we have handed out in, in Hillside over the last probably about five years. All right, incredible resource. And I unashamedly, when I talk about this topic, all right, lean heavily on Comer's words because I love how he approaches it, uh, you know, how he kind of gets after it. And since we are discussing it, I, I want to make sure that we understand that brokenness normally centers around uh, depression and anxiety. And at the same time, we're realizing that at the base of depression and anxiety, there's actually a lot of health there. We talk about depression and anxiety so much, we read articles, we hear about it in our society right now, and we just instantly assume those are bad things in our lives. At the base of them, there's actually, they're very good things. Because it is a very normal thing. It is, a, it is a part of God's creative intent for your life. For when you go through difficult situations, you grieve. That's a normal thing. To not grieve, to not mourn would actually be so much more damaging than to step into those very uncomfortable moments in your life to grieve, to mourn, to feel the loss of something that is very normal. When we discuss depression, now, in its kind of ugly form, now we are talking about something that is not just taking weeks, months, years of your life to grieve depending on whatever loss has taken place. We're talking about something that has overtaken your life. And now, like commonly happens sitting across from a student, and I hear them say, I don't even know why I'm depressed right now. I just am. Now we have this very unhealthy thing that is taking place, the same way anxiety, all right? It is a very good thing for you to fear moments, instances, circumstances in your life, events. It's a good thing for you to have that fear button. And, and actually, as I come in contact with students, I come in contact with this, this demographic, especially on the guy side, of young men that think they are invincible and there is nothing that could happen that could defeat them or take them down or injure them. That's not good. That's not good. And I and you are the voice in their head going, uh, yeah, there's a speed limit for a reason, man. Okay? There's a reason why you shouldn't go those places at three, four o'clock in the morning and sneak out. Like, there's reasons for that. 
right? Fear is also part of the creative intent that God has given us to be able to remove ourselves from situations, to put up boundaries, to say, uh, maybe I shouldn't go there. We talk about anxiety, now we're talking about, though, a state of being where the fear never shuts off, where it just continues. And once one thing is over, you replace it with the next thing. And so we have to ask ourselves around these two things, if that's the elephant in your room, what would it look like for me to pursue spiritual, emotional, physical health in my life? As active partners with God in these areas, what would it look like? The first step, although extremely uncomfortable, and I love how Comer terms this, is that we have to make sure that we understand that anxiety and depressions are symptoms of something that is taking place at a very root level. They're just pointing to the fact. They're kind of saying, hey, something's going on. Wake up. He compares it to a broken bone and the pain that we would feel from broken bone. Hey, something's going on. Make sure you don't use this arm. You will damage it more if you continue to use it this way. And depression and anxiety are those same types of things. There's these symptoms. They're saying something is broken inside of your soul. Go take care of it. So what would that look like? The first step is that we dig. We dig and we go to those roots of brokenness within ourselves. Like I said, this is not pleasant. This is not enjoyable unless you enjoy emotional pain. In some instances, maybe it's sins, maybe it's bitterness, this lack of forgiveness that has just kind of taken over us. I, I love, as someone that can relate to having bitterness in my life over the last couple years, I love what Comer says right here, that at first it feels like armor, like it's protecting you, like it's shielding you. It feels like comfort, but then it turns on you, and your armor becomes your prison. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it kind of traces back to just always finding a reason why you want something else that someone has that you don't get to have. You're just always reaching at that, never content. Maybe it's some type of sexual sin that's taking place where this initial moment of pleasure has quickly turned into this like hollowing process in our souls. What we desired originally is not what we have gotten. Maybe it's worry. If anxiety is a state of being, then worry is the act. And this is a quote that I don't think will ever leave me that Comer makes. He says, we worry about what we worship. He compares worry to temporary atheism. Because worry exposes our idols, it exposes when we are not centered around God. And can I just be honest with you? I think about finances a lot, a lot, too much. And in those moments, I'm reminded of this quote and I say, Mike, your level of worry right now is revealing that this is your God. This is it. You have become a temporary atheist in this moment right now. Because no longer are you trusting in him to provide for you. You are trying to figure out how you are going to make this happen. 
So maybe it's worry that is at the root of all of this. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe right now you have no drive, no goals, no vision, no ambition to work, to labor, to do anything beyond what fulfills your own hedonistic pleasures of the moment. And yeah, you're going to be depressed. Because we were created to contribute rather than always consume. Maybe, maybe at the root of your depression or anxiety is actually not sin that you have done, but it's sin that has been done to you. You have experienced some type of abuse or trauma in your life. And you have been holding on to that for years, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, never really wanting to go back there and deal with it. And every day, it is damaging some part of you. It's damaging some part of your relationship with your spouse, your parents, your children, your boss, your coworkers, because it's never being dealt with. And it's just this ugliness at the root of your soul right now. Maybe it has nothing to do with sin. Maybe it struggles like perfectionism. That everything has room for improvement in your life and because everything has room for improvement in your life, guess what? Everything has room for improvement in everybody else's lives around you. So not only do you want to be miserable, you want to make everybody else's lives miserable as well. I'm a perfectionist, okay? I speak from experience. Maybe you have extreme introspection. It's not a bad thing to look inward every once in a while, to evaluate. It's when you kind of have a little bit too much of this self-consumption taking place. And the longer you look inside, the longer you're going to find more than you really, like a lot of things that you don't really like. Maybe it's guilt and shame where guilt has declared that we've done wrong. Now shame has come in and said, hey, I want you to hate yourself for it. I really want you to dislike who you are because you are guilty of doing something. Maybe it's something that is like the complete opposite of laziness. It's just a lack of rest. You live when you live by kind of the saying, always busy, 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 busy. When someone says, what's life been about? Always busy. Your identity has become this made up, I don't know, mantra in your head of, if I can just prove to people that I'm busy, then I can also prove to them that I am valuable. Because no one would just waste time, and since I'm always using my time, then I must be worth something. And so you take no rest in your days, no, no time for God, no time for solitude. Maybe, like Pete talked about last week, it is a complete lack of gratitude in your life. Uh, which leads to self-pity and victimization. You feel entitled for everything, and when you don't get it, then guess what? We're going to be dealing with unhealth, unhealthy areas of our life. This is the only one that I kind of want to give you a test. If I asked you to write down 10 problems in your life and 10 blessings in your life, which one could you fill up quicker? Like right now, I could come up with 10 problems like that and come up with about four blessings like that, right? 
We just have this attitude that demonstrates itself and just eats us from the inside of this self-entitlement and victimization of why can't I always have the next thing? So after digging, we kind of have to ask ourselves, okay, we've confronted, and maybe right now you've kind of confronted some areas, you've dug, you've seen it just in these last few moments. Maybe this is something that needs to continue to take place in your life over the next weeks, months of your life, right? But what's after that then in our pursuit of health? And I, I'm reminded of uh, Kyle Gray speaking at a D-Now a couple years ago. He said this phrase, if nothing changes, then nothing changes. And so what has been happening in your life up until this point, the damage that is being done to you personally and the damage that you are doing uh, to others around you because of the brokenness that is not being dealt with is that it just continues. And so if you only dig but you stop there, then nothing changes. The first place that I think that we need to begin is on the topic of vulnerability, and I'll get to this phrase in a second. I'm always so encouraged when reading through kind of this New Testament theme, especially in the epistles. I'm so encouraged by the fact that God at the, the heart of our faith has community attached to it. We spent all of this time, Pete spent all of this time talking about that community only to have COVID-19 come in and wreck the idea of us being able to continue to live our lives in normal community this last year. But it's at the heart of what God wants for us, not just to show up, but to be vulnerable with each other, to be transparent with each other, to, to be able to confess and repent together to not just dig and go to those places, those roots of brokenness, but to be able to look across at trusted people, individuals in our lives, and say, this is what's happening. This is what's been going on. Can't continue anymore. i got to confess. i got to repent. To be able to, to go to God and say, God, you know me better than anybody. This is what's been taking place. Vulnerability is massive in the pursuit of our emotional, our spiritual, and our physical health. I love Brene Brown, what she says. She's like one of the leading uh, kind of specialists on the topic of shame, on the topic of transparency and vulnerability. She says, and this is so interesting, this paradox that exists for us. Vulnerability is the last thing that I want you to see in me, but the first thing that I look for in you. Have you ever thought less of somebody because they were transparent and vulnerable and genuine with you? Probably not. If anything, you admire and respect people who are themselves and they discuss their real life with you. And at the beginning of pursuing health, we need to make sure that vulnerability, transparency, confession, repentance are right there. Finding people. You don't have anybody sign up for a life group. You don't even want to do that yet? Go to the corners and pray with somebody. Find some way to pursue vulnerability in your life before you get out of here even. Find some way. All right? The second big one is rest. I love T.S. Eliot's quote. We are distracted from distraction by distraction. And again, this goes back to do you have to have the identity of busyness in your life? Do you have to? Do people, do you want people to see how busy you are? 
Can I just tell you, I have not met somebody since kind of being around this topic and said, how are you doing? They said, oh, I'm just always busy. I haven't met that person and said, man, that guy's awesome. He's always busy. Never happened. I actually think that guy, that girl, they are headed towards very unhealthy waters in their life. Especially if they're a follower of Christ. I'm like, they should know better. Because at the core of what God wants for us is this idea of rest and pace. I get it. There are busy days within the week. There are busy weeks within the month. There are busy months within the year. But if it's always busy, then things need to change. Things need to change. That is not what God wants for you. All right? I love well, I did like it. Did I do something here? There we go. What Andrew Sullivan says. The Judeo-Christian tradition recognized a critical distinction and tension between noise and silence. Between getting through the day and getting a grip on one's whole life. The Sabbath was a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity. If you don't have quiet moments to your day, to your week, to your month, to your year, moments between you and the creator, then you better expect that there is going to be brokenness in your life when you are constantly overwhelmed, never able to process Anything that is taking place in your spiritual life, your emotional life, or your physical life. You've got to slow down. You've got to figure out how to get out of that endless cycle of busyness. It probably looks different for every single person in here, so I'm not really going to like go into it on what you have to do. I'm just going to expect that you're going to be an active participant in pursuing how do I start finding rest. Now, we're talking about rest when it comes to like busyness and work. There also is another rest that needs to be taking place. A study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her iPhone, smartphone, whatever, 2,617 times a day. Now, some of you in here, you're like, I touch it, my you know, smartphone 100 times a day. You're really bringing this average down. Some of you 14-year-old uh, girls in here, okay, you are like, taking this thing through the roof with your constant need to be on social media, right? Not only do our lives and our work and our energy need to find rest, we got to rest from the need to constantly have our stinking smartphones in our face. Since I'm a student pastor, I hear all the time about how teenagers are always on their phone. Can I just tell you, when I go out in public, I see more parents sitting at dinner with their kids with their phones in their faces than I see students. That cannot be the case. We have to have rest. We have to be able to just say, go away, get it out of my face. I don't want this to be a part of my life. All right, kind of beat that one into the ground a little bit, sorry. Sleep. 
When I started in student ministry 11 years ago, I would have never thought I would have so many conversations about sleep with a teenager. That's like the last thing anybody would ever say is, yeah, expect to talk about sleep a lot. Here's how it normally goes. Sunday morning, they come into service, they look tired, I say, how much sleep have you got? And they say about three hours, I binged the Netflix series last night, okay, and I'm tired. Then I ask, well, how much sleep do you normally get? If you only got three hours last night, how much sleep do you normally get? Uh, about five, six hours a night. What are you doing? Homework in the night, social media sometimes, watching YouTube. If you're a teenager, is spiritually, emotionally, physically unhealthy, there is a very good chance it revolves around the topic of sleep. Okay? Never would have thought it. But it just keeps coming up. Matthew Walker, a, uh, a neuro neuroscientist who has really dedicated the last 20 years of his life to, to study sleep, says that we need about seven to nine hours of sleep. He says no one operates well. No one has a healthy, emotional, physical life under seven hours of sleep a night. They're just headed towards a really, really bad place. And here's what he, I, I, I didn't even know this stuff last fall when we went through this in the student ministry. I, I kind of stumbled upon it, and I think this is so amazing what he discussed. So most of you know that in your sleep cycle, you have about 90 minutes of a sleep cycle, and you have non-REM and REM sleep, REM standing for rapid eye movement, right? He describes that 90-minute cycle as this battle that takes place in your brain between non-REM and REM. And he, he goes into the benefits of each part of this cycle. He said that the non-REM, this, this quieter moment of our sleep, is used to strengthen and consolidate our memories. It's actually capturing and solidifying in our brain all of the things that we took in throughout the day. He says that deep non-REM actually helps move our heart and our nervous system from the fight or flight framework that has kind of been taking place throughout today to what he would call the quiescent branch of our nervous system. This, this part where we just experience periods of inactivity and that is actually helping lower our blood pressure and our heart rate. Those are the physical benefits of having good sleep. He says in this non-REM time period also, your immune system is just getting kind of like it's getting built back up. Everything that has been breaking it down throughout the day is now getting built back up in this non-REM part of our sleep. In our REM cycle, or REM part of our, our cycle, we have now our dream, our dream sleep or our active sleep. All right? This, which I've heard more about REM cycle than I've heard non-REM, but this part was amazing to me. He said that in our REM cycle, we are actually being provided with overnight therapy is what he calls it. Your REM cycle takes the difficult experiences that you have had throughout the day and it provides a nocturnal soothing balm on it. It takes the sharp edges off of those difficult emotional experiences that you had the day before. Not that I ever get in an argument with anybody at any moment, okay? But have you ever gotten into something or had kind of like a difficult second half of your day and you didn't really get to go resolve it, but you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning, you're like, was that really as big of a deal as I thought it was? Right? Like I thought 
my wife and I were going to wake up, and before we even got out of bed, we were going to start arguing again. You wake up the next morning, you're like, why was I even upset about that? That's your REM cycle. That's what it's doing. It's taking those sharp edges that maybe got blown out of proportion the night before, saying, not as big of a deal as you thought. Interesting, huh? I know nobody else argues in their life. Also something that takes place in your REM cycle. And I'm sorry, I'm spending a lot of time on this just because I think it is something that we have been missing in our lives. And for parents, grandparents in here, I think it is very important for you guys to hear some of this stuff as it pertains to raising your kids. Also what's taking place in our REM cycle is that there is new, it's taking the new information and putting it up against the old information in your brain. It is literally cross-referencing everything you took in the last day and going, how does this fit in with all of my life experiences that are in my brain right now? That's why when you uh, maybe go to bed and work provided you with something that seemed like an unsolvable problem with no solution, and you wake up the next day or maybe two days later and your brain has had time to process it, it literally has taken your new, like all of this new information, this new memory, put it up against all of your old memory and said, hey, why don't you take this experience from July 12th, 1964 and apply it to this? And you go, why didn't I think of that? It's brilliant. It's unbelievable what is taking place while our bodies are sleeping, that that has the ability to do that. So can you imagine how harmful it is when you're not getting that? When you physically aren't experiencing the benefits of sleep, when you emotionally aren't experiencing the benefits of sleep. For those of you with teenagers, all right, when you were a teenager, guess what? You are emotional and moody. Your highs were high, your lows were low. It's already gonna be the case whenever you are going through puberty and your body is getting hit with hormones all over the place. You're growing inches. Like, I see, I see people, I see students, and I'm like, I saw you last week and you're four inches taller. What just happened, right? And then all of this is already happening, and you say, I'm getting three hours of sleep. Ooh, not good. He goes on, I, I don't want to spend too much time, but you guys have to hear this. He goes on to say that at daylight savings time, all right, that is like a global experiment with 1.6 billion people across 70 countries that they get to observe daylight savings time, which I believe is next Week, right? Yeah. After you hear this stat, we may have wanted to move the uh, children's opening building <laughs> a week later, okay? Because he says in the spring, when you lose just one hour of sleep, they have monitored and observed a 24% increase in heart attacks the next day. In the fall, when you gain an hour of sleep, a 21% decrease in heart attacks. He said car crashes, all right, uh, suicide attempts, and even, get this, even judge sentencing in court within hours of losing a day is harsher because they're in a worse mood than in the fall when you get sentenced within hours of gaining an hour, one hour of sleep. And they can track and see how fragile we are when we lose one hour of sleep one night of the year. 
So if you or your teenager or your child is not getting sleep, then we better expect there to be emotional, physical, and spiritual kind of like, I guess, consequences of that. The last thing I will say on this, because this is, again, so amazing, is when you feel sleepy, that is something called sleep pressure. Okay? That's how Matthew Walker defines it, sleep pressure. There's two things that contribute to you wanting to go to sleep at night. One of them is a a chemical called adenosine. And adenosine is a chemical that from the moment you wake up, it starts building up in your system to make you want to go to sleep. Okay? Now, when you sleep, your brain wipes all of the adenosine from the night before or the day before away, and you restart the next morning. The other one is something that you have probably heard of called the circadian rhythm. Now, I'm not going to get into it. We don't have the time. I'm already past, and I got like five more, ten more minutes. Oh, gosh, sorry, Pete. Um, is the circadian rhythm. And basically, a big part of the circadian rhythm is how much your brain is taking in light. The less light your brain takes in, the more sleepy. This is why when you go to work and they have very poorly lit office buildings, you feel sleepy while you're working. If you go outside, you get kind of a boost of energy because you were created to work when it is daylight and you can work. So Matthew Walker says, here's the big problem, and this is what I really need parents to hear, is in the age of electricity, in the age of smartphones, in the age of technology that we live in, all right, You are dark deprived. At moments where you should be receiving no light into your brain that is preparing you for sleep, now guess what? You, your children, okay, are watching television, very high light, an extreme amount of light that is coming in your face. You got every light turned on in your house, okay? Or you got your smartphone right here, a computer that your kid is doing homework on. So I would just like you to consider With those types of thoughts, ideas, facts, I'd like you to consider that maybe if you or your child is not getting enough rest, start dimming the lights of the house, okay? Get this question a lot. Mike, should I take my kid's phone uh, before they go to bed? I have always kind of leaned towards, yeah. At whatever time at night you set the like, hey, phone's going in the basket kind of rule, eight, nine, 10 o'clock, whatever time it is. I've always been like, yeah, go ahead. I mean, you should think about it. Now that I know this stuff, yes, you should. Because what's happening is your kid is laying in bed at night and they are looking at social media and all of this light continues to just flood into the part of their brain that is reading it. And while that's flooding in, they're like, I'm not really that tired. So I guess I'm just going to continue to stay on social media or continue to play the game or the app that I'm on. And next thing you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and they're not tired. And remember, this is already an age demographic that has high amounts of mood swings, high highs, low lows. So yes, I am very much in favor. Let me go quickly through these last couple. Diet, crazy thought, what you put in your body can affect how you feel, especially caffeine. Again. We love the high of caffeine. Your teenager and sometimes your children, if they're, you know, below that age group, love the high of caffeine. You're dealing with people that already experience big mood swings. So, like, I'm depressed. I don't know why. Because you just had a double shot, and now you're coming down off of that caffeine high. Consider it, all right? 
exercise. I wrote this. You can see this is on there for the students. We were made for the outdoors, not just gaming. I grew up gaming. Dads, a lot of you grew up gaming. Moms, some of you grew up gaming. It's one thing to play video games with a community of your friends for a couple hours. It's another thing that has kind of what it's turned into is our ability to kind of shut ourselves in our room, jump online, play with someone from Sweden that we have never met, and six hours later realize we are still playing the video game. That's not good. Parents, that's not good. Another conversation I have a lot with students is around this topic, especially my young men. All right? And I don't think they're in here right now, but I was talking to the seventh grader, Kaysen Gelling, and I'm like, you like video games? How much do you play? Well, I'm not allowed to play during the week whenever school is going on. All right? Awesome. Good job, parents. You know? Well, what can you play on the weekends? Well, I have limits of how much I'm allowed to play on the weekends as well. Oh, man. Kelly, JC, Gelling, you guys are knocking the ball out of the park. Way to go. I know that doesn't make you popular as the parent, but you are preparing your child to be a, someone that is healthy, uh, someone that is moving towards being able to be a very high-functioning high adult. So thank you for that. Continue, continue to do it. All right, gratitude. Pete talked about it last week. I'm not going to go into it too long. Saying thank you permits the receiver to enjoy gifts from God without the lust of excess the greed to possess, or the idolatry of turning a gift into a God. The creator receives glory, the creature receives grace. This is on my mirror at home in our master bathroom because of how much this has meant to me over the last couple weeks. I actually thought you were gonna steal this last week when you were talking about gratitude. And then lastly, identity. Can I just say all of those other things really matter? They really matter. But if you don't have your identity in Christ, you're still going to be feeling these unsettling results. The, the superficiality of a diet, the, the fact that exercise only goes so far when your identity is not founded in something that can actually sustain the, the deepest cravings of your soul. I have never thought of myself as being depressed or anxious in my life. And I actually in the fall had a bit of a revelation. I'm sitting at a coffee shop getting ready for the last talk of the series. The last one. And it hits me, oh my gosh, I was depressed. My freshman and sophomore year in college, I was miserable. Miserable. All right? Miserable. I told the students, there were literally, I would be walking on campus, praying, pursuing God. God, what is off in my life right now? Like, where is, where is the brokenness? What is taking place? I'm so miserable. I would be walking on campus, and while walking on campus, lights would go out above me on the sidewalk. That's how dark it felt. I'm not joking. I'd be walking and be like, oh, come on, God, Seriously? I'm already in a dark spot. Really? You know what? It, you know when finally after two years of praying and searching and digging, you know what it, it turned out to be? Identity. 
As a follower of Christ, I was trying to create my own identity before God. I was trying to say, here, God, I want to be a child of yours, but I want to prove to you that I'm worthy of being that child. So, yeah, I'm a perfectionist. Always wanted the next little bit to prove, to be perfect. And God finally was like, Mike, you're not just settling. You're not just sitting and resting in the identity that I have already given you because you are a child of mine. You were chosen and you are this special possession that I want. You are no longer in darkness. Now you are a people of light. Just rest in the identity that I have given you. Don't keep trying to make your own identity rest in what I've given you. And spiritual health just took off in my life from that moment. Do we all still struggle with this topic of wanting to go back to our own identity? Yeah. But now that God is able to kind of put the finger on it in my heart and go, nope, Mike, trying to go your own identity, come back to mine. My emotional, my spiritual, my physical health is on another playing field. Another one. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we dig, you would reveal these areas of brokenness. Father, I ask for us that you would give us the courage to be transparent and vulnerable with you and the people in our lives that care about us and support us. God, that you would give us the mental ability to challenge ourselves and our ways of thinking to pursue spiritual health, emotional and physical health in our lives. Thank you for these moments together to discuss this in your name. Amen. Yeah, that was really healthy to hear. Appreciate it, Mike. It was really healthy to hear. I want to say something to you as I'm sitting there, challenged myself. I want to say something to you, really important. If you don't live a distinctive life in this culture, you'll be doomed. In other words, I told you last week I have some rules about food that I live by. But I have rules in lots of categories in my life. When it comes to money, I have rules how we use those and how we don't use those. When it comes to my physical, when it comes to exercise, I have rules. When it comes to food, I have certain rules that I use to live by. But if you don't have any, any way that you live distinctively, all these categories coming together, social media rules, do you have any of those rules? If you don't have them in your life, then you're not living a distinctive life. Life's happening to you. You're not living the one you've chosen. Choose a life in those categories. Live distinctively. And you'll be healthier spiritually. They guide you spiritually better. So that's the challenge at the end of this. You heard all these things that could be done in your life. Set your life up for health. Hillside. Let's do that. Thank you, Mike. That was... Come on.